Well, I was so glad to have Teo with us last week, Teo Bonescu, and uh, he's finishing up his trip to the United States. He's leaving, I think, tomorrow to go back home to be with his wife and his two boys. Uh, just, I thought of this on the way up here. Um, he, right before he got up here to preach, he ran into my office to get his jacket. He was like, this is freezing in here. And he said, we don't even have, you know, air conditioner in Estonia. You guys have air conditioner everywhere. Um, but I would say, if you're new here or if you've forgotten, we have this funny thing at Hope where uh, the air conditioner always blows unless it's heat, and then the heat always blows. So you may want to take, take that in mind as we go into the, uh, you know, 50-degree mornings here. It can be a little chilly. Um, and then, of course, once we get to Christmas and it's, uh, they turn the heat on, then, you know, we'll come in here sometime in our big jackets, and we'll need to take all of that off and open the windows because it'll be kind of toasty in here. So just keep that in mind as we go along. Uh, but uh, I was really glad to, to have Teo here. Just his perspective, uh, he lives an hour from the Russian border, and uh, I know some of you got a chance to talk to him. I was able to talk to him a little bit about uh, that, you know, they have stored up on insulin and things like that uh, just in case, and it's just a really different mindset. When, when he talks about the struggles that they're having, which he actually doesn't spend a lot of time talking about, you know, his struggles are, uh, you know, there's actually a, a tyrant on the other side of the, of the, uh, the border there, you know, and things like that. So it was just, it was encouraging, it's always encouraging to be with him, to be with somebody who comes from a different perspective. I hope you got a chance to talk with him. Um, a small team of us is going over to Romania. I mentioned this we're going on November 8th. It's uh, a couple of Clelands and a few Konofchenskis. Uh, we are going over there to kind of scout some work. I'll talk a little bit more about that in my sermon today. Um, but we are, we are sort of scouting out ways that we can be connected with them over there. I would just also mention to you, uh, you know, we had a, a church meeting a few weeks ago, and we said that, you know, uh, it's a little tight as we're getting here to the end of the year. We are not taking a dime from the church to do this. Uh, we are going on our, own, uh, on, on, our, on our own money. I'm using some frequent flyer miles and some different things like that, um, but there are some expenses. So I just, I wanted to say, um, if, if the Lord were to move your heart to contribute, uh, to make that trip possible, a little above and beyond, you can certainly put that in the offering box in the bank, in the back, and, and just mark on there that that's what it's for. We are committed to doing this trip uh, to look at ways that we can serve over in Eastern Europe in the future. Um, but if you want to help make that possible, um, we, would, we would certainly appreciate that as well. All right, uh, let me pray, and let's turn to James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have brought us together today here. God, that you have brought us together to hear your word, to sing, to fellowship together, to pray together. Um, God, I pray that this would be a time, as your word commands us, that we would be seeking to encourage one another, that we would be seeking to build one another up all the more as we see the day of your coming approaching. And God, I pray that you would lead us to a blessed life. Lord Jesus, you are our king. We confess before you this morning that you have died for our sins. We are here in your presence because your blood covers us. But Father, we also know that you have told us how we can live a blessed life today. And so as we look at the book of James, I pray that you would direct us toward that. Father, may the fruit 
of these next few minutes be uh, that we would bear fruit among the, the places where we live, the people where we live, and that uh, we would truly experience your blessing both in this life and in the life to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I have framed our study of James in terms of wisdom. We started uh, a couple of months ago now in the middle of James. Uh, we've reached the end of chapter 1. I, we will actually be all the way well into chapter 4 by Thanksgiving. So we've, we've gone a little slow through chapter 1. James has some bullet points almost that he sort of comes out of the gate with as we go through chapter 1. But we started in James chapter 3 contrasting wisdom from above with wisdom from the world. Wisdom from the world, of course, produces bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It leads to chaos and every evil thing. Wisdom from above, on the other hand, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of good mercy, good good fruits, impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is very practical. He applies God's wisdom, wisdom from above, to Jewish believers who are scattered abroad because of persecution. And he is writing very soon after the ascension uh, of Jesus. James is perhaps one of the earliest books that is written, and he is encouraging them to live out God's wisdom in the midst of great suffering. And so this morning we come to another well-known passage. James is full of them. And I would say if you remove verses 26 and 27, Uh, and try to take it away from the rest of chapter 1, you would be in danger of making true religion about charity and morality. If you do good, talk right, and avoid worldliness, you will be saved. And so I want to make sure before we get to these two short verses that we understand them in context. Let's begin, let me begin by reading in verse 18, because I think verse 18 is very important for us to hear as we approach verses 26 and 27. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of God, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls." But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, But deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How do we know that James is not preaching moralism? How do we know that James is not saying, if you engage in charity and if you keep yourself from worldliness, you will be saved? We know that because James states in verse 18. He has brought us forth by the word of truth. Down in verse 21, James says, The word which was implanted to save your souls. 
So James wants us to live according to the wisdom that is from above. He does not want us to live according to the wisdom that comes from below. But he is not saying that simply applying God's wisdom saves our souls. We are saved by grace through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I want to be clear on this. Our works contribute nothing. Our application of wisdom contribute nothing. Receiving and responding to God's word contributes nothing. We can say that certainly caring for orphans and widows does not save. And so as we approach verse 26 and 27, I just want to make sure there's no confusion. God's grace through faith saves. Full stop. Now what? Life is hard. Our bodies are weak. Sin is a reality. And I would add, it's hard to fight it. Can't we just hunker down and wait for Jesus to return? And I would say that for James, and we'll see this more as we get into chapter 2, the application of wisdom from above means that Christians live out their faith in the here and now. And again, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, there will always be those who want to whisper to you, don't let anybody tell you to do anything. That's a burden. Our lives are hard enough. Why would we add burdens? And so there's a way of reading James, remain steadfast in trials, pray for wisdom, receive and respond to God's word, help widows and orphans. There's a way that you can read it and you can think, that sounds really hard. And I don't want hard things. I don't want to add burdens to my life. But that's a very limited perspective on what James is saying. Because if you've been hearing what James is saying, if you've been hearing the word and not getting angry, if you're a receiver of the word, if you're a doer of the word, you recognize that there's a parallel list of teachings here. There's joy in trials. This is a God who gives wisdom generously and without reproach. Lowly brothers should boast in their exaltation. There's blessing and a promised crown of life. And then to the one who looks into the perfect law and acts, James says, he will be blessed. So could it be this morning that James is trying to tell us something? Maybe James is on to something that we've missed. Maybe these things that seem burdensome at first glance actually do lead to our joy. 1 John 5, 3 says, for the love of God, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I just read in Psalm 34 this summer, this uh, morning, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you taken a taste? Have you tried seeking the Lord through his word with humility and obeying his commands? Because that's how we need to approach James 1, 26 and 27 this morning. Taste and see that the Lord is good by doing what he commands. We're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about being justified. We're talking about you being made into the likeness of Christ by your receiving and doing of the Word of God. All right, so two weeks ago, we talked about being humble receivers and doers of the Word. And so verse 26 and 27 fit right into that admonishment. And so we have this word religion that appears three times in this passage. Now, many of you probably don't think that religion is a very popular term. I, I think there are many today who wish that James had just sort of left that word out. But he says, if anyone says, if anyone thinks to himself to be religious, and so James is sort of presenting us with a test here. So you think you're religious. How do you discern between true religion and false religion? 
And James provides us with three tests to determine our true religion in two verses. Devotion from the heart, compassion for the helpless, and attention to holiness. Devotion from the heart, compassion for the helpless, and attention to holiness. Um, I remember going on a choir trip to New York City when I was a freshman in high school. I went with our church. And uh, we were all in New York City, most of us for the first time, weirdly without, like, adults, uh, just kind of going around. And uh, everybody was buying fake Rolexes. You know, there were the guys on the streets selling the Rolexes for $20. You know, what? what? You can get a Rolex for 20 bucks. This is amazing. You know, and so everybody's, like, going through their, you know, trip money to buy should buy Rolexes. We didn't have the internet. You know, you couldn't just pull it up on your phone. Is this real? You know, no, it's, it's a guy with a Rolex and it's 20 bucks. Uh, you know, you might have started by considering this is a guy on the street selling a Rolex for $20. Like, this doesn't seem right. But I remember somebody said along the way, a real Rolex doesn't tick. You know, so if you get one of the fake Rolexes and it ticks, it's a fake Rolex. And for what it's worth, it, it ticked. And it didn't tick for long, right? Soon it was gone. There's a way to tell if your religion, if your outward religion, and that's the word we're going to look at, there's a way to tell if it's real or fake. James said that the word of God implanted in our hearts will bear fruit in the person who receives it and responds to it. So let's look at that fruit, first of all, in devotion from the heart. Devotion from the heart. So James 1.26 says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. All right, so this, this term for religious, it's a unique word. It's used only here in the whole New Testament, and it refers specifically to an outward expression of religion. So think external zeal, performance, long, loud prayers, singing uh, with physical expressions, careful attention to worship attendance, um, you know, showy giving, all of the things that go along with external expressions of religion. Okay, and so I would say none of these things are inherently wrong. There may be many times when it would be appropriate to express our heart of love for God through external things, okay? So it's not necessarily wrong. A true follower of Jesus, I would say, should have times where we express external religion, if you're here today, you are doing something religious, okay? But James is calling his readers then to test that religion. Does what you do match what's on the inside? And so you might say, well, then why did you call this section devotion from the heart when it's the tongue that he's speaking of? Well, because James echoes again the teaching of his half-brother, Jesus, who says in Luke 6, 46, the good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks that which fills his heart. So very simply, how can you know if somebody's external religion matches what's going on in their heart? And the answer is, listen to their words, because a, man's, a man who does not bridle his tongue, James says, is deceiving himself. All right, so we will do a deep dive on this in chapter 3. Chapter 3, um, all the way down to verse 17, is all about the tongue. We will have many, many reasons to be convicted. Let me say, this is, this is not about judging other people's 
outward expression of religion, all right? This is, this is for us. He's saying this is for the man who might be deceiving himself, okay? So now is not the time to think, you know, I'm glad so-and-so is hearing this, all right? Now is the time for us to say, what, what comes out of my heart, and how does that fit with the external religion that I exhibit? So James will say in chapter 3, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So a heart set on worldly wisdom cannot bear fruit of wisdom from above. And, and by the way, I do think these days, especially with the advent of social media and the ways that we have of, 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 of expressing our hearts, I think there is such a thing as as fake fruit, as stapled on fruit. Like, as we learn to say the right things, it's easy to sort of put those out there for people to hear, like a stapled on plastic apple. But ultimately, when you know a person, when you hear them speaking, eventually the fake fruit falls off and the real, start, real fruit starts to grow. And James goes on to say that the person who puts on that show of external religion but doesn't keep a rein on his tongue, is self-deceived. His unbridled tongue indicates that his evaluation of himself is wrong. And by the way, this isn't the first time that James has raised the possibility of self-deception. Up in verse 22, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Brothers and sisters, it ought to be a real concern of ours. Do we have genuine religion? If you make a display of external religion, but you have an unbridled tongue, James would say you are deceiving yourself. If you make a display of religion, but you don't do the things that Jesus commands, James would say you are deceiving yourself. Do you want to taste and see what the Lord is good? What the, that the Lord is good? Then take the wisdom that we receive from this book. Receive it. Let it go down into your heart. Put off the wickedness put off the filthiness of the world, let it go down in there, and then see the fruit that it produces. You will find your words begin to reflect that wisdom. I, try, I looked up on the internet because I thought it would be a help, helpful illustration. How many words does the average person speak in a day? I got everywhere from 5,000 to 30,000. So some of us probably speak more than that, some of us maybe less, but if you could see a transcript of everything that you say in a day, what does that indicate about your heart? All right, secondly then, compassion for the helpless. Compassion for the helpless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our Lord, our God and Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in distress. So here's, here's the part that everybody remembers. Everybody knows this verse. This is the, the well-known verse in James chapter 1. So James, once again, uses that word for religion that is outward or external an unbridled tongue does not match up with genuine religion. Well, then what does? What kind of external expression of religion pleases God? And that would be compassion. Compassion for those who truly need help. So what does it mean to visit the poor? Does it mean to drop by? Does it mean to pop in now and again on the poor? Well, it actually means much more than that. And to understand that, we need to understand what this word visit means means in the Bible. In Exodus 1, 23 and 24, this is at the end of the 400 years of bondage in Egypt, the Bible says, and the sons of Israel sighed 
because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. The word took notice of them is the this, this same idea. He visited them. Later in Exodus 4:31, so the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and worshiped. Same thing, same concept, that the Lord had visited his people. We see this over and over again, that the Lord had visited his people. And so then in the New Testament, we find that Jesus, John says, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. God visits his people. He comes to where we are. He takes notice of us. He comes and he experiences life with us. When, when Jesus heals the son of the widow at Nain, the people say, surely God has visited us. And then in Acts, I mean, in Matthew 25, Jesus says, this is the famous sheep and the goat's judgment. He says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will say, Lord, when did you, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer and say, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Let me just say this. When God visits his people, he gets involved. So when the Israelites cry out and he hears their cry, he gets involved. In the person of Jesus Christ, God himself got involved. He got involved with our terrible situation of sin and death. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, saw your need and he visited you. So those who get involved with people who are in need are behaving like Christ. So when James says that true religion consists of visiting orphans and widows in their distress, he doesn't mean that we give them some toys at Christmas time. He, he doesn't mean that we take a, a few things downtown to the shelter every now and then. He means that living religion leads people to actually get involved in the desperate situations around them. So why orphans and widows? And we've talked about this before. And it's true that we're, we're concerned with all men. We are certainly controlled, concerned with all men. We are concerned because all men are made in the image of God. God is concerned with human beings, rich and poor. But God, throughout the scriptures, is particularly concerned with the helpless. He's particularly concerned with widows and orphans because they are examples of those who have the greatest need. Deuteronomy 10:18. he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Exodus 22, 21 through 24, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God promises to protect them. In Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. By the way of the wicked, he brings them to ruin. The widow and the orphan is singled out in the scripture because they represent the lowest of the low in terms of powerlessness, poverty, and hopelessness. Widows and orphans, if you do something for a widow or an orphan, they can do nothing for you in return. 
And historically, the church has been at the forefront of ministering to those who have the greatest need. This is a description of life in the Roman Empire when James was writing. This is from Rodney Stark, I think. Cities in the Roman Empire were characterized by poor sanitation, contaminated water, high population, open sewers, filthy streets, unbelievable stench, rampant crime, collapsing buildings, frequent illness, and plagues. Life expectancy was less than 30 years. The only way cities were avoiding complete depopulation was a constant influx of immigrants that led to urban chaos, deviant behavior, and social instability. Rodney Stark also says that the Christian concept of self-sacrificial love for others emanating from God's love for them was a revolutionary concept to the pagan mind. So when Christians come on the scene in Rome and in other places around the known world at the time, they're coming up against a paganism that has no ethics, that has no explanation. Why would you help a widow? Why would you help an orphan? Why would you take an abandoned baby and not just let that baby die in the street? Because the Christians are recognizing the need for God to act on behalf of those who cannot act for themselves. And so they would respond to terrible conditions. Charity and hope to the homeless and the impoverished, orphans and widows finding a new sense of family, nursing care to those who are injured. In the fourth century, Roman Emperor Julian tried to launch a pagan charity organization that would compete with the Christians because the Christians were attracting so many converts. And Julian wrote to one of his pagan priests, the impious Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. And everybody can see that our people lack aid from us. So what's the point? Simply this, that historically Christians have shared the love of Christ by actively ministering compassion to truly needy people. And that's why historically Christians have founded hospitals and they founded orphanages. So we're talking about here external expressions of true religion. This isn't about laying burdens. This is about being doers of the word. And so since God visits those in need, he moves into their situation, we can know that the kind of external religion, so if you want to have an external expression of your faith in God, bridle your tongue and move towards those who have great need. Those of you who know me know that I I love adoption, and, and adoption is a ministry to which God called Erica and I early in our marriage. We love adopting. We love supporting adoption. That's one of the reasons I'm I'm going to Romania next month. I want to be able to continue to support adoption. And I I want you to know, I do not think everybody should adopt for reasons that I I would be happy to discuss with you. But I do believe that all Christians should be actively seeking to help those whose situation is desperate. And I also believe that it's more than just spending money. I want to make two points here, and, and this is the bulk of my sermon this morning. I I left here on Friday morning with 16 pages, and for your sake and mine, I I did a lot of editing this weekend. I have some thoughts, but let me say two points. Number one, this type of ministry will cost you. It will cost you. Ministry to people in need is messy, and I always say, if you're hoping for little orphan Annie who's going to just come into your household and be so thankful for Daddy Warbucks, you know, who has blessed her with a nice place to live, you don't need to get involved with ministry to people in desperate situations, because people who have experienced great difficulty. And I, and I mean real difficulty. I, I mean like deprivation from food, abandonment, harsh treatment. We're learning that, that those people, it has real effects. 
on their brain, like physical effects that you can see. Their brain is changed by the things that they've experienced, even as young children. And when you get involved in these situations, you will experience behaviors from these deeply affected people that will be very, very off-putting. And I think there's a reason that our world keeps the sick and the helpless and the dying safely behind walls, because we don't want to see it. We don't want it to get on us, and we certainly don't want to bring it home with us. And religion that is pure and undefiled before God might change our clean, beautiful, peaceful lives. Turn with me over to Isaiah 58. I know this is, this is getting a little obscure here. Isaiah 58, I'll give you a second, because I, I want to... I want to read through this passage in Isaiah because I, I think this is, this is so helpful in understanding why it is that we today sometimes don't seem to experience God in our lives. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me daily, and they delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to me. Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, but you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. In such a fa- is such a fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And let me just stop right there because Isaiah is saying, I'm, gonna call, I'm calling to the, the nation, I'm calling to the nation of Judah and all these people and they're fasting and they're saying, we want to know you and we go into the house of God and, and yet we don't have an experience of you, God. We don't see you meeting our needs. We come to the house of God and it just feels empty. Why, why isn't this working, God? Why, why isn't this having an effect? He says in verse 6, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And you shall cry, you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. I I believe our generation is very similar to the, the generation that Isaiah is addressing here in Judah. Because we all do a lot of religious things, right? We all do a lot of things, and we we read our Bibles, and we read good books, and we come to church, and it's like, you know, God, what's going on? Why don't I hear from you? And And I think that God would say to us, and I think that James would say to us, true religion is ministry to those who are in need. Might it be that in this area, we are simply not being doers of the word, and that there's an opportunity here for us to taste and see that the Lord is good. All right, so then out of that, secondly, I don't think that everybody has to do everything, okay? Let me be clear. When it comes to ministry of compassion, when it comes to these kind of ministries for the helpless, 
You can sometimes get the impression that we have to be consumed with every potential need that could ever present itself anywhere in the world. And that is overwhelming. That is overwhelming for me. Some people act like their cause should be your cause. And everybody's got a cause. And if I've got to go around listening to everybody else's cause and doing that, I don't have enough time. And remember, we believe we can't change the world. I'll speak for myself. I believe I can't change the world. You can't change the world. I'll speak for you. Jesus can change the world. Jesus is going to come back. He is the rock created without hands, and he's going to come in one day, and he's going to blow up that world system, and he's going to reign, and he is going to literally change the world. But here is something I have observed from the life of Christ, and I think that this is right. Jesus always responds to the person right in front of him. As you see Jesus go, he saw every person brought to him as a person who was brought to him by the Father. So I don't think we see Jesus in the scriptures running around trying to find every need to address it. He's trying to teach people. He's often trying to get alone with his disciples. He's got other things in mind. But when a person comes to him, Jesus addresses that need. So much so that towards the end of his ministry, when he's desperately trying to get alone, when he's desperately trying to get away with his disciples, and the man who is blind comes to him, Jesus says, okay, fine, I'll heal you. But you have to go, like, away until I get out of here because I don't want you going into town and telling people I'm here and having another crowd on my hands. My point is simply this. Jesus addresses what's in front of him. And I would say to you and me, we don't all have to meet every need, but you should be out there meeting the needs that God brings to you. What needs is God bringing? What desires has he put in your heart? How has he gifted you to serve? What things have you thought about doing for others lately that maybe the Holy Spirit has put in your heart to do, but you haven't acted on that? And I'll say it again. I don't think everybody should adopt but I do think everybody should help needy people. And I don't necessarily think that everybody has to bring them home to live with them, but you might. For some of you, it's family. For some of you, the people in need are right in your house. Moms, it's your little kids. Maybe it's elderly parents. I've read about pastors with thriving ministries who have stepped down to care for wayward children or because they needed to care for an ailing spouse. I, I, I know of a pastor who stepped down from a thriving ministry in California and moved to San Francisco because he needed to care for his elderly mom. There are things all around us that God brings to us. And I would ask you, are you opening your eyes to the needs that God has around you? All right, finally, to keep oneself unstained by the world, this is the one that gets left out. This is seeking holiness, desiring holiness, and I'm running out of time. <laughs> so just like everybody else, we spend all the time with widows and orphans and we don't get to the command to be unstained by the world. I do think this separates, this circles back to James' statement in verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Okay, so real quick, we're talking about the world system here. This is the kingdom that sinful humans create, okay? All the way back to the Tower of Babel, when sinful humans get together, we create a system that ignores God. Our hearts who reject the truth and unrighteousness, get together with other people who have hearts that reject the truth and unrighteousness, and we create a system that rejects the truth and unrighteousness, right? So we have this whole, like, conspiratorial thing going on in this world with each other that we can avoid having to hear the truth of God. 
and it works great for sinful human hearts. Our hearts are fine to find ways to reject the truth. And apart from Christ, we're all in collusion with the world system. So the world system is filthy and wicked. Not the world, not creation, the world system. And these things are a stain. This is the clothing of the world that is putrid and stinky. This is theme park clothes, like I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Get those filthy garments, garments off. Pure and undefiled religion helps the helpless and actively avoids worldliness. And so this is certainly entertainment, okay? So if you are watching things filled with immorality and unwholesome talk, you are definitely stained by the world. There are people that I hear who are Christians, and I know they say that they're watching certain things on TV, and I know what's in those things because I've heard about what's in those things, and I'm like, I don't know how you can justify that. I don't know how you can justify things that are just full immorality watching over and over again and say that you're not being stained by that. But it's not just that. It's more than just pornography and foul language. Worldliness is anything that we are consuming that is rooted in that wisdom of the world, that is rooted in that world system. Any book, podcast, YouTube video, or blog article that espouses anti-biblical philosophy is worldly. It's the music you listen to. People fill their ears with music that is ungodly, that is, that is rooted in the world system, and they can't figure out why their thinking is such a mess. Christians fill their minds with worldly views about money, possessions, child raising, marriage, and health, and then they can't figure out why they're not happy. And remember, there is no neutral wisdom. There is either wisdom from above or wisdom from the world. If it's not drawing you to Christ, it's drawing you away from him. So keeping your un yourself unstained by the world, it's just another way of saying, put off the old man. Paul says it in Romans 13, put on Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lust. So simply this, you can't taste and see that the Lord is good if you are living in the stain of worldliness. And I would add, you can't help others in their need if you're steeped in worldliness and expect blessing. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If you're doing hard things in the Christian life, but your life is still stained by worldliness, you're going to struggle because you're not plugging yourself into the vine. All right, like I said, I left here Friday with 16 pages of notes. So I'm going to close. I want to circle back to the ministry of those in need. Uh, like I said, a few of us are headed out to Romania in about three weeks, and we're visiting uh, the Ukrainian refugee ministry to which we gave money earlier. Uh, we're also attending an adoption conference. They've invited me to speak at the adoption conference. I'm looking forward to that. And it's a way to plan for future ministry. And I hope that some of you will decide to go, to go out there, because it has an effect on you. In 1997, I went to India. First time I've ever left the country, I went to India. And it opened my eyes to a level of poverty and helplessness that I had never, ever, ever, ever seen. I still sometimes smell the smell of India. And it was a beautiful place in many ways, but it was also a devastatingly poor place. I've been in orphanages in Romania, South Africa, in Ethiopia. In Ethiopia, we had mothers trying to hand their babies in through the doors of our van so that we would take them home with us. I've seen children living in rooms crammed in beds where the stench is unbearable. 
And among the worst of these has been some of the institutional orphanages that I've seen in Eastern Europe. Hopefully some of those are better now. In Africa, the, the orphanages were at least staffed with, with, with nannies who seemed to love the babies. But in Eastern Europe, it was not so much. Russell Moore, in his book, describes his first visit to an orphanage where he adopted his two boys in this way. When Marie and I first walked into the orphanages, we were led to the boys in, uh, we, we were led, we, we, where we were led to the boys, the Russian courts had picked out for us to adopt. We almost vomited in reaction to the stench and squalor of the place. The boys were in cribs in the dark, lying in their own waste. One of the things that Moore mentions over and over again in his book is the silence in the Russian baby rooms. The babies didn't cry because they knew nobody was going to come and pick them up. These kind of experiences change your perspective. It's, it's easy for us where we live to keep these things at arm length, and we don't have to get involved. And we have a little bit of a problem when it comes to this verse because we don't see those in need. The U.S. government a long time ago took over for the church in caring for those who are in need. And in many ways, I believe the church has abdicated its responsibility. But being aware of that need, both here and abroad, helps us to see the heavenly investment that we can make. And I would also encourage you, we need to be educating our children about the need and about their ability to invest. I don't want my kids to, to, to grow up not knowing about James 1.27 and about what pure and undefiled religion is. Again, not so that they can be saved, not so that they can save themselves, but so that they can know what it means to be blessed. Because ministry to widows and orphans and anybody else in need, jail ministry should be a gospel-motivated, lifelong pursuit and not just a community service project that looks nice on your college application. So we'll close there. I want us to turn to the Lord's Supper. Ah, let me, let me say one more thing real quick. If you're, sit back down if you're the Lord's Supper. Taste and see. Brothers and sisters, again, don't let the voices whisper any more burden. The Word of God says the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Is it possible that you've never tried doing some of these things that the Lord has called us to do? Yes, they're hard. Yes, they're messy. Yes, they will change your life. But the Lord also promises blessing. I mean, that, 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 that last part of Isaiah right there where I read to you, if you do these things, you shall call on the Lord and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. Oh, man. If only our churches were filled with people who were serving in the way that the Lord describes here and that we were crying out to the Lord and God was saying, here I am. I want to help with that external expression of religion. That's my prayer for hope, and that's my prayer for you, and that you would find joy in that. All right, we're turning to the Lord's Supper. Listen, Jesus visited us. He came and he visited us. Praise God. He visited us in our need, and he came, and on the night before he was betrayed, he took bread, and he took a cup, and he said, this is my body, and this is my blood, and I'm pouring it out for you, and here's a symbol that I want you to hold on to until I return. So in, in many ways, the little meal that we're going to take in just a moment is a reflection of God visiting us. Real, tangible, moving into our need. So I'd invite the, the, the brothers and sisters who are going to serve today to come and uh, Listen, if you are a believer, if you already understand that Jesus has visited us, that he has poured out his blood for your sins, then I would invite you to take this meal with us. If not, come and talk to us. We would love for you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I would love that the next time we gather together that you would know 
what it means to take of this bread and to take of this cup and to celebrate the Lord until he returns. So we're going to hand out that bread and that cup in just a minute. Hang on to it. I'll come up and I'll read a passage and we'll take together uh, in just a few minutes.